Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everybody and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty. The program is Victorian Labour College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And uh, we've got different microphones now because there's building works going on next door, so I apologise if there's slightly less clarity than there normally is. Kim can't be with us today, but she'll be in next week. Well, the Syrian conflict has continued to develop into a proxy war, and it's, it's getting downright confusing. According to Mr Abbott, it's simple. They're evil and we're good and that uh, all the good guys are on the one side and all the bad guys are on the other side. And uh, we've now got the Americans versus Syria, the United States versus Iran, Saudi Arabia versus Syria, Qatar versus Syria, Turkey versus Kurdistan, and Iran versus Israel, to name just a few. Sounds like the World Cup. Well, it does sound like the World Cup. Last month, Israel launched its sixth airstrike inside Syria in the last 18 months which is described as a targeted killing against Hezbollah, whom uh, Tel Aviv maintains is backed by their sworn enemy, Iran. Uh, And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has claimed that Israel has the right to kill them, that is Hezbollah, anytime, anyplace. Back in 2013, the Assad government in Damascus invited Hezbollah militia into Syria to help eliminate terrorists in Syria mainly of the IS variety, and now the uncomfortable reality is finally hitting the surface, that Israel has been picking off Syrian military and Hezbollah targets who are trying to fight ISIS, right? And uh, the Syrians are trying to, and Hezbollah are trying to fight ISIS, Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra terrorists. And Israel is helping the terrorists, right? Mm-hmm. Israel is helping ISIS, Al-Qaeda and the Al-Nusra terrorists. Uh, According to the UN documents uh, on UNDOF, the Israeli interactions with the Syrian rebels have been documented. Uh, The Israelis claim they're only dealing with fictional moderate rebels. Such people don't exist in in this situation. Most of whom have shown time and time again to be defecting over to ISIS. This story has been completely blacked out in the US and uh, American corporate media even though the Israeli press has actually reported this numerous times. In a new report from the United Nations, it's revealed that the Israeli Defence Forces were maintaining regular contacts with members of the Islamic State since May 2013. Initially, this was that they were giving only medical care for civilians, but that story fell apart when the UN observers identified direct conflict between the Israeli Defence Forces and ISIS soldiers in giving medical care to ISIS fighters. I mean, these are the people that we're meant to be fighting. Yes, these but, are the people that the Americans say that they're fighting. Yes, but ISIS are uh, Sunni, and so they're creating this opposition with uh, Iran, which is, I've been told to say Iran, which is mainly Shiite. And so Israel and Saudi Arabia have this kind of vested interest to, well, oh, they, they, I, I think to oppose Iran. This is oh, I think that's true. But it, it does 
take away from the rather simplistic Obama Abbott version of the world, uh, observers even saw the transfer of two crates from the Israelis to the ISIS forces. We don't know what the contents were. And they also identified what the Syrians labelled a crossing point of forces between Israel and ISIS. The discontinuing pattern of Israeli support for the Islamic State. Uh, In their efforts to undermine the Assad regime, they are in fact strengthening the same terrorist group which recently set a Jordanian pilot on fire to set an example. Now, these crossovers are completely ignored by the Western press and the high-up military command. When the United States began its operation against ISIS, the Israelis seemed reluctant to give any support, and they called the move a mistake. Well, it is a mistake from the Israelis' viewpoint, because they're providing succor and comfort to the Islamic terrorists, at the same time as their ally, the United States, is bombing them. The support of ISIS fits in with Israel's concern in the region, namely, as you say, that of Syria and Iran. And the United States' opposition to ISIS has put the United States in the awkward position of once again arming the enemies we'll be fighting tomorrow. Support for ISIS for Israel enables them to eliminate two issues at once. Only once Syria is no longer a concern, Israel will then turn it, only then will Israel turn its attention to ISIS. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, groups like ISIS have relied on Saudi Arabia for support. But Saudi money is conspicuously absent from the ISIS copper. Unlike groups before, ISIS has gone self-finance, relying upon prostitution, slavery and oil for its financial well-being. This in turn removes the protections which Saudi Arabia has relied upon for almost a century to prevent such organisations from actually turning on the House of Saud. So the Saudis are concerned too. In turn, the ISIS forces have all but forced the Kurds to become a mighty force unto themselves, much to the anger of neighbouring Turkey, a major, a major American and increasingly Israeli ally in the area. Rather than helping to fight ISIS, Turkey is instead attacking the forces standing in opposition to ISIS, the Kurds. The whole situation has spiralled out of control. So the comment by a Muslim cleric in Australia in the last week that Really, it is ultimately the West responsible for the rise of ISIS. He's not too far off the truth, although he's being he's being uh, lambasted for saying that. In who's the that? There's a Muslim cleric who's who's come out and said that basically the problem with ISIS it's a problem created by the West, well, and I think he's actually right. There's an awful lot of questions which come up with this. I mean, an awful lot of questions. Um, uh, anyway, so, I mean, the Israelis will use anybody to carry out their dirty work in an effort to destabilise the region and depower any nation it sees mm-hmm. as a threat. Yes. They'll support anybody if it meets a short-term goal, even if this re- result is a plot more complex and ridiculous than an episode of Neighbours. But the thing is that Israel is actually, in a sense, consistent in a way which the British were consistent with their European policy, and that is to oppose the strongest perceived threat, a bit more... You know, it's a bit more intense and complicated with Israel. They will oppose, and they have fought with every perceived threat in the Middle East at one time or another. Uh, you know, and then when they are, you know, from the Israeli point of view, dealt with, then they can go on to dealing with the next one. So there's a consistency to Israel. Oh, oh, there, there is, there is, but it sort of makes hypocrisy the 
line that we're getting in the Western press here and from Abbott that it's simple. ISIS are the death cult <laughs> of course. and it's uncomplicated. Well, that's and 1984 stuff. Well, it is yeah. 1984, but it, it's Because it changes, on. the black and white And changes. the Israeli stance is not being publicised out here in Australia. I've seen no reference to Israeli support for ISIS in the press. I'm wondering, Chris, why you haven't mentioned Saudi Arabia and friends uh, attacking Yemen in the past couple of weeks. Well, because I wanted to deal with one Just, topic at a time. Okay. <laughs> um, I we'll mean, get that. We could spend hours talking about the Middle yeah. East situation. Oh, and of course, we could deal with that. All right. Uh, would you... You do what you want to do. Yeah, with sure. I was just job. going to say also about Turkey being an Israeli. I mean, Turkey's not an Israeli ally, but not in that, you know. No, I they're the, not. The people but, certainly but, wouldn't. Well, they are, but they're being manoeuvred in a way that they're yeah. uh, that they're they're worried by the Kurds. Yeah, via the West. That's right. Yeah. But they were. I mean, it's not a direct support, but no. it's an indirect support mm. because. They're battling the Kurds. Yes. The Kurds are bat- the only people who seem to have done anything decent in relation with ISIS. To the, with ISIS. Mm-hmm. And the Turkey, of course, opposes that. So they end up, de facto, wanting to protect ISIS. Mm. And this is all a result of, uh, ultimately, Western intervention. Anyway, you wanted to talk about... Um, yeah, well, I was kind of, in a way, falling on from last, last week, but it's mainly to do with penalty rates. And uh, this week in South Australia, Australia's biggest union, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Union, SDA, did a deal with Business SA to allow businesses employing 40,000 people to pay lower penalty rates on weekends and end penalty rates during the week. Now, to get into the detail, the deal cuts public holiday penalty rates from double time and a half to double time. You've only got a few public holidays per year. Sunday penalty rates from double time to time and a half and totally scraps loadings for Saturdays and weekday evenings. All that I have read a few times in exchange for the 3% annual pay rise, although it's 8% according to the red flag. I'm pretty sure that figure's wrong. And the SDA Secretary Peter Malinowskis says, quote, this doesn't leave workers worse off. Get on, get on to that later. Now, ever since the election of then the Abbott government, it, sorry? Uh, well, if it doesn't make workers worse off, why would the bosses well, want it? Well, yeah, well, the thing is that, I'll get, I'll get on to this later on. I mean, you can look at it. I mean, I, I do, because I work in jobs where you have both. Uh, you can look at it and say, well, cash-wise, how am I better off? Somebody who's working through the week but might, don't, doesn't really work weekends and the, the days when you get penalty rates, they might say, well, I prefer the higher rate of pay. So in the short term, you can be cash-wise better off. But I'll get on to that in, in a minute. Now, ever since the election of the Abbott government in 2013, there have been calls, and more often shouts, by big business figures and their government representatives to cut or scrap penalty rates. The bottom line is that lower wages equals higher profits. But a whole variety of other reasons is given as to why these actions must be taken. Never mention profits. <laughs> Ian McFarlane is the Federal Industry Minister. He not surprisingly welcomes the cuts and he pointed to the internet saying this, quote, The internet is 24-7. People want to shop when they see something they like. If they walk past the shop and it's closed, they simply get that item up on their phone and order it. Now, of course, this impatient person can shop online using the phone. We've done that. But the product still has to be delivered, and that'll probably be done via a shop. You, you don't get the product the minute you order it. So if they were window shopping on a Saturday night, for example, they're not going to get the product they ordered online before Monday morning. So why not just wait for the shop to open? 
Ian McFarlane went on to patronise workers, saying this, quote, People in the retail and entertainment sector, retail and entertainment, need to understand that we are now living in a 24-7 society. So he seems to think it's a recent development that a day has 24 hours and a week has seven days. As a politician, he may only work in daylight hours during the week, but people in the sector of entertainment and retail, they've been working around the clock for years. A publication, I got this, uh, an email I get, a public, I didn't ask for it, but <laughs> there you go. A publication called The New Daily gave different reasons for the acclaimed need to cut penalty rates. They said, they said we needed, quote, and this is actually a quote, I mean, it's, it's weird, but anyway. We need an eruption of common sense because economic forces, when ignored for too long, behave like volcanic lava. Erupting in the most unexpected places. That's capitalism. <laughs> this is this is the quote there. So their spin is a little bit different from McFarlane's. They say, "quote The economic force driving the decision is unemployment." So yeah, again we have this, and we've spoken about this in previous weeks. Yeah, again we have this notion that in order to create jobs, you lower wages. In fact, as we've discussed. Lower wages leads to less disposable income for workers, which leads to less products being sold by businesses, which leads to businesses reducing or stopping production, which leads to workers losing their jobs. Unemployment. Higher profit in the short term, but higher unemployment in the long term. Then out comes the same old excuse for further slashing wages because we have unemployment and etc. etc. So it can take you into what we have, which is recession or depression. The New Daily goes on to point to youth unemployment in particular and claims that the new regime, quote, will be most attractive to younger workers who actually want to see the boss create new shifts on a Sunday. I don't know where the evidence for that is. Yeah, no, quite. Young people want to work on a weekend. That's right. They, they, only, they only want to work on a Sunday. It's strange, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, strange. And so that, that's what they say. So apparently, yeah, one pe- young people want to work on weekends. I don't know why they're young people. I, mean, I, I certainly did when I was young. But anyway, so what's stopping these young people working on the weekend is these greedy older workers demanding weekend penalty rates. Right. That seems to be the form of logic. Yes. The fact is that penalty rates are fair compensation for working antisocial hours, and it doesn't matter what age you are. So the New Daily goes to great pains to point out that they're not just spouting right-wing dogma. That's what they say. This is not right-wing dogma. They have a genuine workers' representative on their side. And you've got to figure out, don't say anything, but just try and figure out who the genuine workers' representative is who supports them. No, just don't say anything. I can take it for a few, actually. (laughs) This one really must bring to mind. He was the head of the Australian Workers' Union following on from Bill Shorten. His name is Paul Howes, and in 2014 he called for what he pretentiously called his Grand Compact. This was to be an updated version of Bob Hawke's 1980s Accord, which basically sold workers out. I won't go into that, but not surprisingly, uh, Howes, Piggy Paul Howes, I think he looks like him. Anyway, bit of a pig, I just, I think he does. But not so, but I shouldn't say that, I'm not sorry, but if you're listening. Not surprisingly, Howes now works for the European best accounting firm, KPMG. He is the New Daily's pathetic example of a workers' representative, and he loves the SDA deal. The thing is, and this, this is a bit sad, but the thing is that a year ago when Paul Howes was coming up with this grand compact, as he calls it, the SDA rejected it. 
And yet now they seem to be embracing that vision. It can be argued that some 95 weekday workers will be better off with an increase in the basic pay in the short term, with a figure of 8% far better than a paltry 3%, but I'm pretty sure it's 3%. I have jobs myself which pay penalty rates and which some which pay a higher basic rate, and dollar-wise it can be a, a, a toss-up, you know. But the point is, because that's not the point, the point is, I'm speaking long-term, Every major business group has been itching to slash penalty rates for some time. Of They've course. been demanding it. They've course, been demanding course. it. Why? The SDA has given them an opening. and They'll want more. We know what Peter Malinowskis and Paul House thinks of the deal. What about House's predecessor? Uh, sorry, not yeah, predecessor in the in the Australia's. Australian Workers' Union, House predecessor was Bill Short, and now the federal Labour leader. Apparently both he and his deputy, Tanya Plibersek, have no problem with it. Short in calling it a win-win situation. Well, yes, he would, wouldn't he? There you go. Pretty, pretty disappointing, eh? But not unexpected. Now, to his credit, because I was having a little bit of a crack at the... Di- SCTU last week. But to his credit, Dave Oliver of the SCTU stated that business groups still want to take penalty rates in exchange for a big fat nothing. And that is what they will want. It may have seemed for a while that parliamentary matters were seeing the federal government being challenged in its pro-business and anti-worker agenda. Now it seems that following on from the poor March the 4th rally turnout and now the SDA penalty rate sellout, it will be the bosses who, with or without Abbott and his friends, be pushing harder for greater profits. I don't see this as pessimism. I really don't. I, I see it as being realistic. No, I think that's exactly you know? what's going to happen. I, I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, hope, I won't fight against it. But wages will fluctuate, and so will prices, and so will profits. But if we go on to give away incrementally or a one fell slip, if we go on to give away the very idea of penalty rates, we will lose in the long term. Absolutely, no question at all. Good, good, good. Well, the other thing that happened during the week, of course, was the death of Malcolm Fraser. And people are singing his praises because he opposed apartheid and he supports multiculturalism. He opened the doors to the Vietnamese refugees. And more latterly, his recent treatment, the recent treatment of refugees by the Abbott government. Yeah, and he opposed the ANZUS alliance in in later years. He's written a book recently opposing the American alliance, which is very progressive. He quit the Liberal Party in December 2009 after Abbott was elected as leader, saying he'd become, quote, unrecognisable as a Liberal. But in fact, Malcolm Fraser will be mainly remembered for his role in the infamous Canberra coup of November 11th, 1975. In these events, the Liberals, the supposed champions of democracy, were the signal, he was a central figure creating the conditions for an extra parliamentary coup carried out by the Governor General Kerr with the backing of the CIA, British Intelligence and the Australian Military and Intelligence Services. Fraser created the conditions for the coup by ensuring that the Liberals in the Senate, some of whom were waving, refused to pass Labor's budget thereby denying the government supply contra- contradictory to pre-existing tradition. Over the next few months, these circumstances were manufactured through a so-called land loan scandal in which the Labor government sought to raise $4 billion from Middle Eastern sources. And this loans affair had all the hallmarks of a CIA dirty tricks operation with never-ending hints of financial impropriety, none of which were ever established, fake documents and a cast of characters to match. 
It's often thought that one of the chief motivations for the coup was the demand of the corporate elites and finance capital in particular for budget-slashing measures amidst a worsening economic crisis. The global recession started to happen at the beginning of 1975 in the last year of the Labour government. The Labour Party, however, had already acceded to these demands in the 1975 budget brought down by Bill Hayden, who was a replacement for Jim Cairns. The budget wasn't the issue. Not economic measures as such, but their political impact. That was a decisive question. The underlying motivation for the coup was the fear that the working class, which had surged forward in a powerful wages offensive in Mm -hmm. 1974, securing the largest rises in history, would come into collision with the Labour government over the budget measures. Under conditions of a deepening global slump, there was a powerful international upsurge of the working class. Remember that the Heath government in England had been brought down in 1974. The The fascist regime of Salazar had been ousted in Portugal in April 75. The Greek colonels had been done over in July 1974. Compound this with the American defeat in Vietnam in April 1975. But there had been reversals um, September 11, 1973. Well, that's, well, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, and so, in other words, ruling classes everywhere were fearful of a conflict between the working class and, and the Labour government and where it might, might lead. Fraser could not have exceeded, succeeded in ousting the Labour government without the active collaboration of Whitlam himself, who was then the uh, leader of the trade, who, together with the then leader of the trade union, Hawke, did everything to ensure that the eruption of white anger in the working class following this missile didn't take the form of any independent exactly. political movement against the Hawke. Yeah, always the point them to the ballot box. Always pointing yeah. them to the ballot box, and Hawke went round telling people to cool it, yes. to calm down, yes. to calm down. In other words, in Hawke's word, the central task was, quote, to prevent the unleashing of forces the like of which we have never seen, That's and that right. is a militant working class. So the Labour Party's role was to prevent the working class from actually getting in. Absolutely. In other words, even in the turmoil of the events of 1975, and notwithstanding Whitlam's epithet that, this, that Fraser was Kerr's Kerr, the two leaders played a complementary role in the defence of the stability of the capitalist class. class. In ruling circles, Fra- Fraser's term of office which went for seven years, has been placed under the sign of wasted years. According to the Financial Review in an editorial published on his death, Fraser, despite three election wins, never got on top of the economic problems he inherited. His period in office represented a lost economic opportunity. And his efforts, Fraser's efforts to wind back the working class and dispel working class militancy failed miserably. Mm-hmm. And the transport workers took Fraser government on and won. Mm-hmm. And the metal workers did as well. Oh, economically, it was very right-wing, Malcolm Fraser. Oh, he was. His, yeah. But that was his aim was to try and stop the working class mm-hmm. and restore profit levels, which mm-hmm. had gone down in the 1960s. Um, Fraser himself, probably aware of the fact that he was being criticised by his ruling class mates, once noted that perhaps the most important contribution of his government was the change it affected in the Labour Party. And I think this is true. Mm, uh There's some truth in this. Fraser's term in office saw Labour abandon its commitment to the mild forms of the reforms of the Whitlam government Mm. and together with the trade union bureaucracy established a series of mechanisms called the Accord 
that would suppress the independent struggle of the working class in defence of wages, jobs and living conditions. Well, this is what Paul Howe's grand vision is. <coughs> well, that's and, right. and you, and well, you accord, yeah. That's right. The final impetus for what would become the so-called accord with the unions under the Hawke-Keating governments was the upsurge of the working class in the early 1980s that created the conditions for Fraser's defeat at the 1983 general election. With the help of the unions, the Labor governments of the next 13 years implemented the free market agenda of economic reform. This wasn't introduced, in fact, by the Liberals. Um, And this economic reform now held them as the paradigm to be followed by all governments. This is what Fraser was unable to to, to get rid of because if if, if it is uh, if uh, sorry not uh, Fraser wasn't able to yeah, carry it on because so if it was Fraser it was and the, government. the Fraser and the Conservatives trying to do it there would be some resistance but through the Labour Party it's like oh well there are guys a lot of people well, believe that's right. so that's right I'm sure that worked that's same it. policies though in his recent book Dangerous Allies published last year Fraser saw the alliance with the US as an increasing danger. He gave no explanation as to why, therefore, he had supported the Vietnam War, and just, he, and just that he said it was now a mistake. Yeah, and if you read, I read that, and um, <coughs> I especially read the part in the Vietnam War, and he's still, unlike Robert McNamara, <coughs> unlike quite a few people from that time, his Fraser seems to be more like Kissinger. He's, he's not very much a no-regrets man when it comes to the Vietnam War. Well, because, he, because he still sees it in terms of the, the Cold War, the anti-communist crusade? Yes, yes. I, I, even to his death. Well, he's come to the conclusion now that the economic rise of China meant that the interests of the Australian state would be better served by an independent foreign policy. And he's right in pointing to the dangers of our alliance with the Americans. It means continuing war. He's more like Rod in that regard. In uh, recent years, he's pointed on many occasions to the role of US bases in Australia noting that the major communications facility at Pine Gap was no longer a listening post, but was integrally involved in daily military activity by the Americans. If the Yanks are involved in a war, then we will automatically be involved. Fraser once commented that there would be uproar in the Australian public if the real activities and role of the US bases were widely known. Well, you can depend on the Australian press not to tell us anything. The tumultuous political events in which he was an active participant were not the result of a failure to develop an enlightened policy, but were rooted in the contradictions of the capitalist economy and the nation-state system. While having no appreciation of the essential driving forces of the system that he served, Fraser nevertheless ended his days as somewhat less aware that uh, aware that somewhat uh, that even bigger storms than those that he had participated in lay directly ahead. So uh, let's not get too sent about Malcolm Fraser. As you say, he was a ruling class representative who, who when he's propagandising against the Americans, it's from the viewpoint of the Australian capitalist class, who he thinks are imperiling themselves by ignoring the fact that China is the rising power and wedding ourselves to the declining economic power, but military still song. The United States. By ignoring the fact of Australia's actual position in the world, <laughs> geographically, economically, yes, etc. Et yes. Look, it's t- three minutes before we uh, take your calls. What I found interesting is that with all this Gallipoli business coming up, that the uh, Turkish government, the Turkish government had leapt on, leapt on this as well. 
And that they're celebrating Gallipoli. Do you know why? Yeah, they make money out of it. Well, it's I mean, the tourist yeah. industry. Well, maybe. that's true. Well, that's true. But they're real. They're, 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 the gloss they've given on it is that they've claimed that the uh, Gallipoli campaign was the first step in the national revival yeah, within Turkey. Yeah, modern Turkey. That's right, yeah. Which, of course, is rubbish. Mm. Uh, the the, the, the defence of the motherland argument is bogus. The Gallipoli campaign was not part of the Turkish National War of Liberation, which went from 1919 to 1922. It was a tragic episode in the imperialist slaughter of World War I for raw materials, markets and geostrategic interests that resulted in the death of millions. And... Uh, in the uh, the actual Gallipoli campaign, which lasted some 10 months, both sides lost approximately a quarter of a million men mm. in that war. And uh, it was the most one of the most horrific slaughters of World War Two. I, I had a great uncle who was in the Gallipoli campaign, and he always said, you know, it was it was a slaughter. I mean, you know, they were mar- marching up this hill towards these Turkish guns. So, uh, you know, he certainly never glorified it. Uh, yet you see these histories, and I read this one, uh, one of the papers from Ted Bayou, the old Victorian premier, yeah. and they go on all about all oh, this Gallipoli gush. They never, and this article was typical, did not address. Why did we go to war? Well, of Which course. you would think would be the most obvious starting you point. Would. You would, absolutely. Why are we going to war? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, and all the talk which you're going to have in, in bucket loads the next in, month, the, in, yeah. the le- in the next month about how we fought in, uh, in Anzac for our freedom. Channel 7, this, this story of ours, I don't know if you watched this, you probably no. wouldn't. Well, the story of ours, a little history of very, very childlike of Australia and at the end of World War One, they said that Australia and her allies had won the First World War at the end of the Second World War they said that was won by Australia and America and her allies not Russia Huh? <laughs> exactly. Didn't mention that. Exactly. I mean, no, no. the Russian <laughs> army actually defeated the, no, no, no. Uh, the, the Gestapo the, the, the Nazis <laughs> but uh, but uh, first they faced twenty divisions for every one the Western Allies faced, well, and they exactly. killed six Germans for every one the Western Allies yes, killed. You know, not right. many killings, but right. you know, they, they, they won the war. That's right. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, and what's what's nauseating is all these young people draped in Australian flags, mm. draped in Australian flags, talking about how they fought for our freedoms. No, they didn't. Did they fight for democracy? No, they didn't. Most of our allies weren't weren't democracy, and democracy was never on the table. What was on the table was a reorganisation of who owned what, which colonial master owned which colonial property. That's what it was about. And it was the German went to war because, as in the words of the Kaiser, they wanted a place in the sun. They wanted a place in the sun because Germany and Italy, believe it out of it, Germany hadn't unified until 1870 That's through right. Bismarck defeating the different nations around them. And they were then militarizing. And then they were looking for what all the other European powers, even little European powers like the Dutch and the Portuguese, and the had Baltic, got, yeah. That's which right. was empire. Colin, that's right. But by the time the Germans got around to it, the outside of Europe, was nothing left. Well, I mean, was, you know, Africa went from uh, virtually no colonial powers in 1870. Ten yeah. years later, there wasn't a square inch Mainly of the land British and the French. that wasn't colonialised, and the Germans felt left out. Left out. And that's what it was about. It had nothing to do with uh, and, and our trade. freedoms. It had nothing to do with democracy. In fact, it had nothing to do with Australia as such. It was about maintaining 
the grip of the British Empire on the world. Can I That's just, what it was about. Can I just bring up what Alexis Sale, the comedian, said? He said the reason apparently the Stuarts went to World War One because he couldn't think of another one was because they were really missing the Belgian chocolate. <laughs> well, that's about <laughs> as serious as uh, the Herald Sun gets. No, that's, no, it's, no Alexa Sale. Yeah, I know, the I know, comedian, I know he the too, comedian. Right. Not to do that also. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.